0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELEC 825. We are thrilled to join you on WWW, WWDB 860 Let's add some
1: extra W's.
0: Man, we haven't even started yet, and I'm already screwing Is up. Is that on your wrestling thing? 97.5 Network, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. <laughs> Jeff, I can't even talk to start the show, and I'm not the one I, that banged my head into the window in the new studio when I went to look out the yeah, window. Yeah,
1: well, look, we were told that the, the, big, the big selling point to, for us going to a new studio, as opposed to the, the, the beautiful one we were in before, was that there was a beautiful view. So I had to get closer to the view, and for those that weren't here, I smacked my head into the window
0: pretty hard. <laughs> and then sat in studio <laughs> for the next 30 minutes going, is there a bump on my head here? Yes. This kind of the scene out of
1: Tommy. I Boy. believe not my here, IQ actually here. went up. Right here.
0: Yeah. Keith Pompei joins us on the There's line. There's still a
1: mark on the window, by the there way. There is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sixers beat writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Not much to do this with Keith,
1: right?
2: Nah, never, never, never anything. Oh, my what? God, is Keith.
1: Why aren't you in Atlanta or Milwaukee? Because the Sixers aren't playing there. <laughs> <laughs>
0: because,
2: because you cursed the team.
1: <laughs> it's, so it's my fault, right? It's always your fault, uh, Jeff. Uh, Keith, one of I didn't I, look. I'm not the one who asked the, the 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 tough questions. Although I will take credit for him. Keith, it's it's been a few days. <laughs> We've been able
0: to digest. I've heard your breakdown. I've heard rumors, exit interviews. What the hell happened? <laughs>
2: Man, it was just crazy. I I don't know. I I think um, it was a lot of things. I I think that they made some poor adjustments or lack of adjustments. I think you had a guy who was shying away from the ball. You had another guy who was missing shots. You know, um, I I just think that they choked, basically. I mean, if you want to be real, they choked. They had the opportunity to – to win it in what five games and and they choked they choked
1: you know you and i talked about this this morning we talked about it last week i think we have talked about it every day this week i'm still not buying that this isn't all ben simmons fault um i believe that there is enough uh weight to go around as far as responsibility for the loss but the dominoes fell, in my mind, because Ben Simmons couldn't hit free throws. And when he couldn't hit free throws, it means he didn't want to touch the ball. And when he didn't want to touch the ball, the rest of the team had to adjust to the fact that they had four guys on offense. What's your take on, not whether it was Ben Simmons' fault, but whether or not this is fixable for Ben Simmons? You
2: know, that's the tough part, because it's kind of like the little boy that cried wolf. You know what I mean? And, and then all of a sudden the wolf shows up and you don't believe it. You know, I, I think the the problem with Ben, the rhetoric always sells good, sounds good. Like after he has a, a, a bad game, he always comes back and says, I'm going to do better. I'm going to be more aggressive. And the next time he's not any more aggressive unless they're playing, you know, one of those teams that, you know, are, are in the lottery. You know what I mean? Um, that's how it goes. But <laughs> as far as the Sixers, When you hear Doc Rivers saying, we're going to get him in the gym, we're going to do things. Well, each summer, Ben Simmons has supposedly been in the gym doing things. And when he comes back, he's always the same player. So when you hear that, it really doesn't give you a lot of confidence that things are going to change. It it, it just doesn't. Um, And and that's the one thing. It, It has to be a wait and see. And it's not even a wait and see for the regular season is a wait and see for the playoffs, not just the playoffs, the second round of the playoffs, because typically they're going to be way better than the team that they're going to play in the first round. And teams don't defend you, and they defend you differently in the playoffs than they do from the regular season. So, you know, it's all those things If they keep them, It's just going to be a matter of everybody waiting to see what happens next year in the playoffs. And then it's just going to be, if it doesn't work out, it's going to be pie on the sixers face and if it does work out they can say yeah yeah we got out finally got out of the second round so it was a tough one man it's really a tough one
0: Keith I'm gonna own this I wanted to keep Ben here to see if they could make it work I'm over that um, you know I, I the people who say but his defense you can't play defense if you're not on the floor and clearly no, clearly something happened. Whatever it is, I, I, I don't like to always say choke or ascribe motives. Whatever it is, um, he didn't want the ball at the end of the game. Uh, that was clear, and then he wasn't in the game at the end of the game. He had three field goal attempts in the whole series. He shot a total of 14 times. He shot four
1: times in game hold seven. Hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. Keith, let me take this one for a second. You, you did this again with the whole I don't want to say choke. It, it, what if if what happened to Ben Simmons in the fourth quarter of those games is not a choke, what is? I don't know what, what it is. What other example do you need in well, any sport than a guy who cannot make a free a shot choke? and then is afraid to touch the ball? A choke <laughs> implies
0: that it's a one-time thing. No, it, it doesn't it happen. I no, I it don't doesn't. think. This I is a think persistent this is, choke. I think this is a long-term problem. He doesn't want the ball now. Like Keith, you were there at Summer League when when Ben came out. He shot jumpers. He was aggressive. Now he gets a foot from the basket and he throws the ball out to somebody who's in double coverage who then has to kick it around on the, on the perimeter to eventually get to somebody who's open and they get bailed out because somebody hits a shot. So I guess my question is, look, we all thought—Daryl Morey thought he moved him. And, you know, people forget he thought he was gone and that didn't happen. So you're obviously selling where he's not at his highest value. But is Ben Simmons a sixer at the start of next season? no matter what they say about it being fixable?
2: See, that's the tough one. I think if Ben Simmons is a fixer at the start of next season, it's because they didn't get what they wanted in the trade. That's it. You know, it's not a matter of fixing. It's hard to fix something when it's mental. You know what I mean? Like, it's up to Ben Simmons. Like, you know, you can have him in the gym forever shooting 800 jumpers, doing whatever you want, but until he's ready to correct it, it's tough. So I think that if he is a sixer at the end, it's just because they couldn't get what they thought they could from.
1: What do you think of the, the rest of the team's gonna reactions going to be to him being there if he's there at the beginning of the season? Does this team rally I mean, around him, or do you think that there is right now at least total reluctance to to having him I mean, in the I mean, game next to them? It depends on the
2: relationship that they have with, him, with some of the guys, you know. You know, like Magic said, oh, he couldn't be back. You know, he can't bring him back into the locker room. But when you look at the team, like, who's going to be back in the locker room? I mean, Matisse, Shake, Maxie, Joel, uh, Seth, and, and Tobias for the most part. You know what I mean? The rest of these guys are, like, basically going to be free agents.
1: What about Ray John so- Tucker?
2: Um, I mean, yeah, Ray John Tucker, too, <laughs> but I don't even know about him. Like, he was on a two way deal, so he'll probably become unless they sign him to one of those crazy deals, you know, he'll he'll be a free agent. But but yeah, I get what you're saying. So I mean it's it's one of those things where people know that it's a business. And and I think that like let's just say if if he is on the team um at the start of the season, I, I do believe that they're still gonna try to push him, but they're trying to get something of value. See the one thing we got to understand here is that, you know, if you move Ben Simmons Everything that they've done in the past was basically a failure. I mean, they tanked for let's say five years, four years, and they had all these lottery picks. I mean, we're talking about they had they got Nolan's Noel at number six, then they they got Michael Carter Williams at what number eleven, number thirteen, and then after that they got Joel Embiid at number three. Then the, then the next year they got uh they got uh oh they got Joel Embiid and and um. And Dario Saric, you know, a lottery pick. And, you know, uh, Jaleel Okafor, Mikel Folks, Ben Simmons, all these guys. And now when it's all said and done, the only one you have is Joel Embiid and you can't get out the second round. Whereas you got a team like Atlanta, you got a team like Phoenix, who these guys were late lottery picks, like late lottery picks besides eight Right? And didn't tank the way that fix. the Sixers did. Ex- exactly, that's what I'm trying to say. So like the Sixers tank, these guys didn't tank like that, and now they're playing for the Conference Finals. Have it? They're probably going to win, go to the NBA Finals. So, you know, if you get rid of Ben and don't get anything in return, it's like, wow, that was the dumbest idea in the world. So and I, I think they're trying to alleviate that.
0: Is it better to keep Ben so you don't have to admit failure? or send him out and cut Uh, your losses at this point?
2: I think, you know, it depends on who you are. (laughs) You know what I mean? I mean,
0: Daryl Morey Morey would probably want to cut his losses because it's not his guy. But the front office, you would think, is more wedded to it because, like you said, for them, sending Ben Simmons out of here is an admission of a larger failure of their strategy since the start.
2: Well, it's not really the front office because, you know, Daryl Morey is in charge of the front office, and a lot of those guys weren't here at the beginning of it. I mean, you know, some of them might have been there. Some of them were there for like the Colangelo years, which were a blunder and draft picks. Um, but for the most part, I think it's more or less ownership than anyone else. That's what I mean. Because ownership yeah. is the one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They're the ones who signed off on it. Yeah.
0: I mean, they're the ones who, you know, decided with Sam Hinkie when they started this that they were going to take the heat from the NBA and and tank. And look, I mean, we've we've had so much focus on that that I feel like. Doc hasn't gotten some of the scrutiny that, she, that he should. And and some people who didn't want Doc hired would tell you now that he's got 29 losses with a chance to clinch a playoff series, the most by any head coach in history. Now, I texted Jeff through the series. I didn't mind some of his rotations, but I didn't understand his end of third, four, third quarter, beginning of fourth quarter at all in any game. He would go to the all-bench team, and I would text Jeff, and it would happen every time. They would either have a lead, and the lead would be cut down so that Atlanta had momentum going into the fourth. They'd be tied, and Atlanta would go on a run. They'd be down by seven each game. What was Doc doing with the rotation at times? And I understand he was hampered by Ben and what was going on there, but it just didn't make sense to me to keep your backup lineup on in the playoffs when you have stars on other teams who don't come off the court. Kevin Durant played every minute of that game, that Brooklyn won. their,
1: played in the last series. That was the longest question that I've ever heard, and almost as long as your text string during the game.
0: <laughs> I, because I'm, I don't understand. Like, I don't claim to be the basketball expert. Yeah. But okay, let's let the basketball expert answer. Get
2: it. Go. <laughs> I don't know. In the question. Only joking with you. Now you know it comes to a point like that. That was really mind boggling to me. And because you know, I, I kept you know, when in the playoffs, you always think of you know, guys in the first round they may go nine guys, and then in the in the second round they may go seven or eight, right? And he kept toting guys out there, and a lot of it was doing with he didn't want to get his guys tired. Um, I, I think he wanted to rest them up. He wanted them play in the certain minutes range, but I think that it was kind of sort of like he was coaching as if he was extremely confident that they were going to go way deeper in the playoffs, and he didn't want his guys wearing down, right? It, that's what it seemed to me. Well, he didn't have you to know? worry
1: about that after all, did he?
2: Yeah, he didn't, and, and, and it came back to home. And then if you notice, what happens is, you know, he came. seemed like he tried a little bit in game seven to have them play a little bit more minutes. Like their, their, their rest time wasn't as long as it normally was, but they were gassed. I mean, you can tell they were gassed. I mean, you know, so I I think that that backfired on him. I mean, I was, to be honest with you, I was a little shocked that he played as many guys as he did. I also thought that he kept trying to see, you know, like, okay, so the first game you have it and you have the first two games, Maxie is the guy. Then Maxie plays bad, poorly. So then all of a sudden you bring in uh, uh, Shake Milton. Shake Milton is like – bringing that energy, and everything's great. Everything's working well. But then, next thing you know, you take Maxie out, and then the next two games, Shake can't buy a basket. Then you bring Maxie back in, and then Maxie does well. And then in game seven, Maxie goes back to being a rookie again, which happens. So I felt like he wasn't 100% sure with people, nor did he have a lot of uh, – uh, he didn't He didn't want to play his starters that many minutes, but he came back to bite them and tell, because you are right. It was one of those things when we had the starters in there. It was a matter of, okay, fellas, I need y'all to get, 20, get a 20-point lead. We know when you come back we're only going to be up three, but you're going to be well-rested, and let's close the game out. All right. And, and, and to me, that's what it was.
1: If you, based, based on what you saw, especially in the playoffs, who's the starting point guard game one of the regular season next year?
2: Um, Based off of people on the current roster right now, Mm-hmm. Um Wow! Um, I guess you may have to go with Tyrese Maxey. Yes. You know, based <laughs> on what I saw. Now, here's the thing, though: if you want to go with the veteran leadership or something like that, you would have to. You would say George Hill. But based off of what I saw, I guess you have to go with Tyrese Maxey. I mean, you. you I think you have
1: to. Well, that's my next. That's my next question: Is George Hill going to be here next year? Was it? What? Yeah,
2: he's on, he's on the. I mean, I think he will. I mean, I think he will be.
1: You don't think, um, you don't think uh, if there's a trade to be had, George Hill gets rolled into that trade? Do you think he was well, he was worth having around?
2: Um, I, if you use him the way you say you say you're going to use him, yeah, I don't think they did. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. I always notice, like, you know, basketball. I know you could say you can have one dominant player in basketball, right? And he could win you a championship, right? They say that on the high school level, you no. Know, and but when you look at a guy like George Hill. Even when George Hill was in his prime, when he played with Indiana, I never turned on the TV to say, hey, man, I got to see what my man George Hill is about to do. Like, it was always about Roy Hibbert and Paul George, right? And then you look there and you say, okay, George Hill is a point guard. He doesn't make a lot of mistakes. He plays pretty good D, and he'll hit an open shot from time to time. That's when George Hill was in his prime. But then you bring George Hill on a bench unit that's basically struggling, that's getting ran out the gym before he even came there, and then you expect him to, like, oh, elevate it. And then when then people saying, oh, he's looking bad. What's wrong with him? Why is he looking bad? Well, that's just how it is. That's it. Like, you know, you can't like, expect a guy to play with dudes who are struggling and expect him to become the eraser, so then he looks bad. But initially, I thought the idea was you bring him in, you take the ball handling and everything off of Ben, right? And George Hill will be the guy. And it just didn't happen that way. And and they had him coming off the bench, and he was playing with guys who were struggling. That's how it goes,
0: you know? Where's Joel Embiid's head after all this? He went out and played on a torn meniscus, um, you know, says he gave everything he had, definitely tried to make improvements over last season, clearly thought this would be their year. Where is he right now?
2: I mean, he's frustrated. I guess a little bit, but I mean, it looked like to me that you know he gave his all. You know, he's the one guy who didn't get booed. Actually, he got to stand in ovation when he walked off the court. You know, I mean, right now, if you're Joel, you're saying to yourself, like, you know, hey, let's see what they can do, what they can, when it get better. And here's the thing: Joel knows that as, as good as this team was supposed to be, that he even said this, and and he wasn't really being critical of the team he said the team they had two years ago was the best team when they had Jimmy Butler and they had J.J. Reddick. So if you're Joel, if you're the 76ers and you're Joel, you know, you want to know what they're going to bring out there to help to help elevate you guys. Because, you know, no offense, but I felt like what the Sixers did in the regular season was full gold. I mean, yes, they had the best record in the East, but we both, I think all three of us will agree that they were the third best team in the East you know, as far as talent-wise. And, and that's maybe, not second-guessing.
0: How many times did you come on the show, and we talked about that, ranking the teams, yeah. that, you know, the Nets and the the Bucks all along, That could the Sixers beat them, keep up with them, and it seemed to be injuries that stopped those teams from doing what everybody thought they would.
2: Yeah, and I think Joel knew that. I think he knew that. I mean, I think, you know, you go out there and you try to give it that old college try, everything's great, this and that. But, you know, this team had a lot of holes, a lot of holes.
1: All right, well, look, we got to go, but there's a couple things that I know are constant. One is, is that if you want to get your Sixers news or your NBA news, you always got to open the Enquirer, which I'm old school, so it's the newspaper, but you can do it online, and catch out Keith Pompey. And second, there's always the podcast, which is the best podcast in the business. However, we moved to a new studio this week, and I'm guessing that you must have delivered my Michelob Ultra to the old studio, because it's not sitting here either.
2: Yeah, let us let, do a wager on that one. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> All right.
0: Keith, we'll have you back on All to talk about it. We hope you get a little break now that the season's over. Look forward to reading everything you put out. All
2: right. Thank you, fellas. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care.
0: Thank you, Bye-bye. Jeff. It's. I I know it was the longest question ever that I asked him. But it might
1: it might be your it might be your record setting question. Yeah, we've been in six years. That was a long question. Because because not only did you ask the question, then you stopped. And then he started answering, and then you went more. I'm
0: just so frustrated. And,
1: And, like, after a while... I know he's doing other stuff while he's talking to <laughs> yeah, us. he's like, and there's if I'm him, I'm losing track of what the question was.
0: <laughs> well, I'll, I'll let you get started on the next one. Let's bring no, on an here, here's, your, here's your redemption chance. You're gonna let me he, bring on an Olympian. I am. We are gonna talk some baseball and his journey with Jake Rosenberg, outfielder for Team Israel, but from the Philadelphia area. Jake, thanks for, for the time.
1: So, Jake, you are. Hey. Jake, you are down. You grew up down the road from the studio. What is it like for for you to be on the way to the Olympics from down the road at Harrington High School?
3: Yeah, well, first off, thanks for having me, guys. But uh, no, it's honestly it's hard to say to dream come true because this really isn't something that uh, you know I ever dreamed about playing in the Olympics, especially baseball. I mean, baseball hasn't been in the Olympics for you know the past three or four, so to have it back this year and for us to qualify and only have six teams make it, I mean, it's honestly, can't even put into words what it really feels like.
0: You actually had no idea when you moved to Israel that you'd even be playing on the national baseball team. Now you're a participant in the first team sport that Israel will play in since 1976. Tell me what it's going to be like for you to walk in those opening ceremonies representing your country.
3: Oh, my God, it's going to be unbelievable, especially, you know, being from the States and not being born in Israel, you know, having to uh, become a citizen Over the last year, I mean, it's going to be unbelievable to represent the homeland. I mean, you know, our team is basically comprised of all American Jews, but we all have that same, you know, common thing that, you know, we are all Jewish and we all, you know, want to represent that homeland in the best way possible. And it's really, like I said before, it's can't really put into words what that uh, is really going to feel like. It's going to be unbelievable.
1: So you guys are getting together, getting ready to go out there soon you got a whole bunch of games scheduled in the united states before you head out there what's it been like for you guys to get together and get ready for this experience
3: i mean it's basically been impossible the last year with the pandemic and everything so the january right of 2020 right before the pandemic hit we were all in israel doing like a team fundraiser thing you know just you know, yeah exactly just raising money and everything just hanging out with the guys because we hadn't seen each other in a while and then we hadn't seen each other until a month ago, so it had been over like a year and a half. So obviously we had Zoom calls here and there. We were texting, calling each other. Uh, guys that were close to each other, you know, would still work out together, but it's basically impossible to have, you know, team practices or get a whole bunch of group of guys together with the pandemic. So last month when we were in Arizona, I mean, it was it was awesome to see everybody. We got a week uh, worth of mini camp just to, you know, see where everybody's at, get a feel for all, like, the new guys that were added to the team, so – you know, these upcoming weeks with the exhibition games are just going to really just prepare us for that, you know, that week in Tokyo.
1: You said that when you moved out to Israel, you didn't even know that you were going to be doing this. When did you know it was a reality? When did you know that this was something that you were going to be able to do?
3: So to be honest, I didn't even know there was, Isra- or there was baseball in Israel up until about 2017 when they had that WBC run. So after college, I kind of, you know, went to Israel. I knew I was going to coach the national teams, but I didn't realize that there was, you know, a national team for my age. I was playing out there in a the men's league, and then you know, after a couple months of being there, they told me about this national team that was going to try to make the Olympics. And I thought to myself, I'd be an idiot, you know, to turn this down. What a cool opportunity that would be. So probably after a couple months of living there, you know, working out with the guys that were in Israel and the team, it kind of, you know, was uh, put into reality. And then that summer of 2019, when we all met at, in uh, Bulgaria for the first time. It kind of, you know, really set in. And we're the, one of the bigger underdog stories probably in sports history, if you ask me. So, I mean, it's, like, it's, it's just unbelievable. Really hard to put into words.
0: You talk about the number of American Jews on the team. And, and for those who aren't familiar, obviously, baseball here is, is everywhere. Baseball there, there's 1,000 Israeli children that play baseball in the country, and there's one regulation field. Can you talk about what it means to to basically raise the profile of a game for a country and, and, you know, you directly, not just playing, you've been teaching these kids and passing on those skills. What does that mean to you?
3: Right, so it really does mean the world to me. um, Just to be able to pass down my knowledge and my skills to people and kids who, you know, didn't really have any mentors or anybody to look up to. Obviously, there's no professional league in Israel. A lot of those kids, yeah, they can watch some major league games, but, you know, they're on at 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. So now that they have a team, you know, to look up to, have a bunch of role models, and to be, you know, one of those role models, I mean, it's, it's one of the coolest things in the world.
1: You know, we had the, we've had the chance over the last few years to uh, work with Team Israel, uh, go to the opening of the Heading Home documentary. I don't know if you had a chance to see it, but it, it was gut-wrenching to see those guys, some of those guys who had never been to Israel and been taken there and have that experience. Have you gotten to talk to some of your teammates that haven't gotten to spend time in Israel the way that you have and what that experience is like for them?
3: Yeah, so like I mentioned before, we were in Israel in uh, January 2020. We were there as a team. Some of those guys were there for the first time, and me having you know living there for a year, or whatever, I was basically was kind of, basically one of the one of them. So I'd be showing them around and everything. We just kind of talked about the different perspectives as how we saw the country. Obviously, they saw it from an outside perspective, and the fact that I was living there for a year, I kind of you know had a little bit more. I had a little bit more knowledge of what was going on and was able to share everything baseball and not even baseball related just you know just news that was going on in israel and the jewish world and uh it's just the way we all got kind of connected
0: this olympics is a little bit crazy having to wait a year i know you talked about the difficulty in getting together and training what's it been like for you an athlete just having to wait a year to be able to do what you thought you were going to get to happen last year
3: oh i mean i'm, I'm just another year older now so my, my <laughs> body's definitely feeling a little bit but uh no, it sucks. I mean, obviously, sitting around waiting an extra year just to play, you know, to play in the Olympics. It's almost worth the wait just because you get another year of training and everything. But, I mean, you know, it was supposed to happen last year. We were all so excited. We were all, you know, we qualified a couple months before the Olympics. And then next thing you know, a year and a half later, we still haven't played yet. So we're just, you know, we're all just really happy and excited that they're still coming up and going on. Because, you know, for a while there, we weren't really too sure if they were even going to happen. So the fact that they're still going on and going to happen and we can represent, you know, the country of Israel, it's awesome.
1: What do you think it's going to be like for you to walk out and actually be at opening ceremonies? Have you, have you tried to envision Uh, what that experience is going to be like? I've tried to
3: envision it. I've tried to dream it and I truly have no idea. (laughs) I I can't really think of, you know, what that's going to be like other than probably the greatest experience of my life.
0: How special is this for your family to, to watch you achieve this, but then kind of be along for the journey?
3: Nah, yeah, very special, especially, you know, the Jewish heritage playing and representing Israel as a country. I mean, no one ever thought that I would live in Israel, let alone represent Israel on a national stage. So I know they're all very happy and proud of me. And, you know, I really owe it all to them for allowing me to pursue that opportunity and be with me every step of the way.
1: What what have the guys that experienced the World Baseball Classic uh, imparted on you and the guys that didn't have that experience?
3: So those guys really, you know, showed us what it was like to be a professional. So some like me, I played D3 baseball. Some of the guys were in the minors, played high, you know, Division One, D2, D3 ball. So the guys who were in the WBC team were more, you know, professional. So they really showed us how to act and how to, you know, just kind of go about things and represent Israel in the best way possible.
1: All right. So when do you head out there? When 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 do you punch that ticket?
3: Uh, so, we July 7th is when we have our uh, training camp, like in New York, the Northeast, Bethesda, Lancaster, Harrisburg. So, we go there July 7th, and we're there for about a uh, week and a half to two weeks. And then July, I believe it is 21st or 22nd, head to Tokyo.
0: Well, look, we look forward to following your own journey over there. We look forward to following what the team does. Wish you best of luck on the journey, and, and thank you so much for the time to talk about it.
3: Yeah, appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me.
0: No, no problem at all. Jeff, could you imagine you never even dreamed of, you know, going to the Olympics? And, and then all of a sudden, I mean, he played baseball from Little League through college and then sort of thought his dream was done. He went over there to coach. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you end up playing and now you're going to the Olympics. In
1: the Olympics. I don't know about you, but I, as a kid, it was like, that was, I obviously knew I wasn't good enough, but I used to sit there and dream about just the opening ceremony. For some reason, it's something about the opening ceremony that, that is just, it's gut wrenching. It's, you're, you're representing your country, whatever country that is. Uh, it's the beginning of this amazing global spectacle of an event. Well, look, you know it's it's
0: funny. You're gonna like this because when we talk to John Wertheim, uh, author at 440, mm-hmm. his book Glory Days, one of the main pivot points is the 1984 Olympics, mm-hmm. and he has a stat in there that the 1980 Olympics made ten million dollars in sponsorships, and in 2000 in 1984, the way that he did it was rather than each company giving away a little thing, he made it a more limited sponsorship, and so with just one sponsorship coke outbid pepsi for 12 million dollars and with mm-hmm. one sponsorship in 1984 the the olympics exceeded what they had done in 1980 so do you want to Is
1: that why there is a coke can on the table
0: just lucky do no. you want to hear what NBC universal <laughs> announced this year for their ad sales 11 million they dollars. have twenty more advertisers <laughs> than the Summer Olympics in 2016, and plan to exceed more than one billion dollars in
1: ad sales. Is that more than the? That's more than the more last than Olymp- the last Olympics. More despite than, everything that's going on. More than Rio,
0: despite everything, with wow. twenty more advertisers and making more money for an Olympics that could barely raise ten million four how decades strict,
1: ago. How strict? I haven't seen any of the rules recently. How strict are they going to be regarding player movement? Very. Um,
0: They're going to be restricted. Uh, No fans are allowed to come into the country. There's limits on how many people in the country can be there. I was actually reading... Wait,
1: so only fans who who are citizens of the country can Yes, you can't... What about family members?
0: Jake's family can't go over there. They can't go watch. As as far as Mm -hmm. my understanding, no other people other than the traveling party for the team will be able to be over there to watch in those events. It's just going to be... And even the number of fans that they're going to have there from the country is going to be less than they originally planned for this facility. The emperor actually on Thursday said that he's extremely worried that the Olympics and Paralympics could accelerate the spread of coronavirus in the region. So you're 28 days from the Olympics. Who said that? The emperor of Japan, Naruhito, on on Thursday. Really? Yeah, you just asked me that so that I could say his name, by the way. I know how this goes, <laughs> Jeff. You're not that clever. No, I didn't know he was still called the Emperor. He is. Actually I have it in here. A limited yeah. number of local fans. So well, that mean you get right. Organizers <laughs> set a limit of fifty percent capacity up to a maximum of ten thousand fans for each Olympic venue. And official said that if COVID cases rise, the rules could be changed and fans could still be barred altogether. Spectators from abroad were banned several months ago,
1: and now some local fans who have tickets have to, will be forced to give them up. Well, you know, I'm okay. if, as long as they're consistent with the rules and it's a safety thing, I'm cool with it. I don't know if you saw, but the Open uh, that's going to be in England. They're going to be the, very strict. <laughs> yeah, but but their rule makes no sense. So, so they're sitting there saying to the players, by the way, if you book someplace whenever you booked it, because they booked this way in advance. You can't stay there in some of these cases. There's going to be a limited number of places they can stay. They can stay in individual residences. But here's the thing. There are all these people that aren't going that, – that are – what are you doing
0: trying to signal to Matt Stop. over the, side of the glass.
1: So if, if well if people are watching I'm you landing you, you, an airplane. You're making what do you think I'm doing, doing here, Jeff. this and I, it's, it's like you know I'm waiting for you to like just get up and like swing from the vine. I'm, I'm trying like, to signal to doing? Matt
0: that I was going to cut off your mic and take a break.
1: Oh okay.
0: Well so can't what, say that on air it has to just happen.
1: Well you might as well just <laughs> say it next time instead of swinging your hands around. Way to blow up my spot.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> no so so what they're saying to the players is you have limited access you're not allowed to leave you're not allowed to go to a restaurant and by the way, we're going to allow in potentially thirty to 35,000 fans, and they're not going to follow the same protocols. Yes. And, and by the way, anybody who's ever watched golf sees how close the fans are yes. to the golfers. Yes, makes no sense. And they're going to be so strict that if anybody, I think if anybody in their, their little party up to four people gets it, they're out, right? <laughs> anybody <laughs> to contact, they're out. What if they get it from somebody who's from the thousands of people that are standing right next to them yelling "Baba Booey"?
0: Look, this is what is happening now. Every sport has to navigate this differently, and they all come up with their own standards. And you're going to see, but they're not navigating it well. But it, you, look, even they're being here, hypocritical about it. Well, that's been a process throughout much of this, Jeff. Let's uh, let's uh, leave it there. Let's hit the break when we come back. We'll do a little baseball before we have John Wortham on to talk about his awesome book.
4: Stick with us. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work.
0: Jeff, we're back on the air. Are you ready to talk again? (laughs) Glad to see you're prepared this week, Jeff, as usual. You're you're going to land an airplane in the studio? Yeah. Can we talk some Phillies baseball before no, we...
1: No, we just had like a feel-good baseball story. Why do you have to ruin it with not a feel-good baseball story? Because they're oh, the I team know, in uh, the wait, city. Wait, wait, wait. I know what your feel-good baseball story is based on your text today. You're all excited that David Hale is now on the, on, on the team and Alvarado gets to be the closer. It's not.
0: Wait, no, 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 no. <laughs> I was not excited that Alvarado is the closer. In fact, I said, what could go wrong? But I was excited you did. that David oh, Hale... Oh, I thought is... you were serious. I am. Yeah, <laughs> what could go wrong? Right, what could go wrong? Let's it's going to go perfectly. For every strike he throws, another one will go through the catcher's legs, mm-hmm. back to the backstop. It'll be great. Let's just hope he doesn't inherit any runners.
1: So it can't be worse. I don't know if you've been watching the World, the College World Series, but, but a team lost on a pitch that he just threw over the catcher's head. Oh. God. I mean, I felt so bad
0: for that guy. That is painful. The yep. Phillies are 34 and 37, four and six in their last 10. They're five games back from the Mets and start a doubleheader against them tonight. Jeff, if you go down to the stadium tomorrow, you can see Jacob DeGrom pitch. That's probably better than anything you're going to yeah, see. Yeah, but they're not here. They're in New York. Well, if you go out to the stadium in, in for the Mets, you can see it. Get uh, your tickets, get well, on the train. Just and
1: make sure you get there on time because he won't be there past the fifth inning. Yeah, no. So, so compare Vince Velasquez to Jacob de Graham. They both lately have been pitching the same number of innings, Excuse except me. Jacob DeGrom Stop. gives up 0 or Stop. 1 hits, 0-1 would... walk, and 10 to 15 strikeouts in that same period I'm of time. I'm going to revisit <laughs> Jeff
0: from every other day and year of doing this show and point out that you just put Jacob DeGrom and Vince Velasquez in the same sentence next to each other. Yeah, for the number of innings they're pitching. They don't belong in the same sentence uh, oh, yeah. for and anything. Did you not hear the rest of it? I didn't need to listen. All right. <laughs> there was well, nothing then, okay. else that mattered there. Listen. Aaron Nola gets the start tonight. Matt Moore gets started in game two. he's back. (laughs) He is back. Um, But he's healthier now, right? I guess so. Uh, You want the good news? You can watch it if you want. It's not streaming on Peacock.
1: I did not like that. Well, the worst was the way that you made me sign up. And so I don't know if you have some sort of deal with them to get people to sign up and you needed one more person. Because, you know, as people know, we've been covering the Phillies minor league organization. We interviewed all of their prospects. And... And one of our favorites was Matt Veerling. I love and that you, you signed up for Peacock to watch and, Matt Veerling. And, and the you major texted Leagues. me and said Matt's going to make his 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 major league de- debut. He's on, and I'm flipping around going, "Where's the game?" <laughs> and you go, "It's it's on Peacock." And I'm sitting there trying to figure <laughs> out, "Do I need?" And I literally signed up just in time so I could watch Matt Veerling.
0: You regret your decision that you've now paid for. I haven't turned it on since. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you better hope the Phillies are on there again. Actually, I just didn't like the broadcast. I found it grainy and not clear. I prefer the TV. Well, where were you watching it? Uh, On my laptop
1: on the stream. I was watching it on my TV. Was it crystal clear? It was the same as any other television station. Glad that your TV is better than mine. Which laptop were you using? Because you got like seven of them. (laughs) Don't be jealous. Well, I've been in your your house where you have a stack of the same laptops.
0: I don't throw away old laptops. You never know when you're going to need something. I have another theory, but I'm going to leave it off the air. Yeah. (laughs) 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 Unbelievable. Can you uh, tell me your thoughts this week on the Max Scherzer, Joe Girardi substance on a baseball where I never thought I'd see Max Scherzer taking off his hat and his belt?
1: To show people that there was not. Yeah, but you know what? On. That was weak by Scherzer. If you're going to do it, go all the way. Like Sergio Romo, who just <laughs> just decided to pull his pants down on the middle of the field <laughs> to show the umpire, I don't have anything. <laughs> uh,
0: apparently, Rob Manfred thinks that the first couple of days of this is going well, going swimmingly. <laughs> swimmingly. Your thoughts on an analysis on Rob Manfred's No, take the whole thing's a circus. It, it,
1: it, see, that's the problem with baseball is is that for people like me that absolutely love baseball. They're even ruining it for us. I had lunch with somebody today who is a lifelong baseball fan, somebody that is such a baseball fan that you would recognize him the second you saw him or heard his name. I'll leave it to him in future weeks to actually talk about it. But he was like, Jeff, it's, it's unwatchable. And it is. That's the problem. With every single thing they do seems to be reactive, not proactive, and not with thought. It's okay to try different things. But have a plan when you try the different things. Like, I like the fact that they would try things in the minor leagues. Somehow, though, those things don't seem to make it up here very often. Instead, what it is, we're going to react to something that we wink-wink knew about. But all of a sudden, now we need to do something about it. Look, I to- I've
0: told you all along, everybody knew about substances. I tried to get an advantage back how many years now with this? This is not surprising. I, I think it's amazing that they decided to do this midseason. season uh scherzer's comments after the game uh being asked if he wasn't happy i don't know these are manford's rules go ask him what he wants to do with this i've said enough go ask alec bohm how he feels about 95 at his face i don't need to say anything more about this that wasn't cool that he said that. I don't right? think that that is what Major League Baseball is looking for. Well, I don't think that it was cool that he said down. that because that, to me that was an, that was a threat. Well, I think he's referencing the fact that he couldn't grip the ball very well on the pitch before, I but that. I agree with you. I don't buy it. And, and look, I mean, we talk to pitchers who tell you it's basically like grabbing a pool ball. And they just don't have the grip. And so we've asked the
1: ball instead of sitting there. We've
0: asked them why they'd make the change to a different baseball after double A to triple A. It makes no sense. It looks like that will be the solution potentially next year, a different
1: ball. Double A ball?
0: That's if there's baseball. (laughs) <laughs> that could be the next thing.
1: We'll do that in another week because that's a whole right. separate discussion dealing with the union.
0: I want to get to this awesome book. Uh, we're joined by journa- one of the best sports journalists in America, Sports Illustrated executive editor, correspondent on 60 Minutes, author of numerous books, including his latest Glory Days, The Summer of 1984 and The 90 Days That Changed Sports and Culture Forever. John Wertheim, thank you for the time. Did I cover everything that you do? His time's up now. You're (laughs) going him through all that stuff. (laughs) You're a busy man.
3: (laughs) You're very kind.
0: John, I got to tell you, Jeff Jeff will let you know, I am not what you would call a fast reader, and I have gotten into this book, and somehow I'm up to the Olympics in Chapter 20, and I'm shocked myself because I don't normally do that. But you wrote in the book a line, history doesn't send out invitations in advance. Uh, and that's what makes this summer special. Why was now the time for you to write this book and and how'd you choose this period? You were what, 13 years old in 1984?
4: I was 13 years old. I mean, the the origin story is that, uh, Michael Jordan had come to my hometown for, uh, Olympic basketball tryouts and you'd you'd see him around at mini golf and at the movie theater. And, uh, it was sort of a special summer for me in, in, in retrospect, um, but, no, I mean, this, this was not a summer where you said, oh, man, we're living in history. You know, 1968 or you know, pick your, your early year in 71, you know something big is happening. Even – I don't know if you guys saw the 30 for 30 with, it's like, the OJ Chase and the Knicks are playing and the, the Stanley Cup's going on. Um, that you, you knew at the time this was a big deal. 84 just seemed like a pretty normal summer. And I don't know, there's an Olympics, and uh, Reagan's going to win another term, and this Michael Jordan guy's pretty good, and Bird and Magic are playing. And it wasn't at the time especially momentous or turbulent or anything like that. It's just later you said, wait a second, David Stern's the commissioner, Bird plays Magic in the NBA finals, Michael Jordan gets drafted, and it's all in the same week? Or you say, wait a second, the Supreme Court had a decision about – NCAA athletes and the NCAA's cartel powers and that all happened in the summer of 84 just as we had it this week and we had an Olympics that turned a profit and turned into big business and now here here we are in 2021 and we're going to have a COVID Olympics not because of Simone Biles but because of how much money is at stake. It it just seemed like so much in sports that still was relevant today Uh, took place that summer but it wasn't like at the time it was People didn't walk around saying, holy moly, we're living through history here.
1: Well, yeah, and when you're 13 years old, it's, it's a very influential period in your life. So you, know, you, can, you can think back to that time, and it means a lot to you. But when did you realize that it was, a, a, it was an influential time? You didn't realize it then. At some point, though, you realized, hey, this was an influential time, and this is worthy of a book.
4: I, you know, I'd, I'd written a piece about that Jordan Summer for Sports Illustrated. And someone said, you, you should write a book about that. And I said, yeah, you know, my, my, um, I, th- I think you had him on. My buddy, Jack McCallum did a book on the, on the dream team in 92. And I didn't think there was enough for a book, but then I started poking around and I sort of said, well, wait, wait a sec. you know, born in the USA, Ghostbusters and, you know, Purple Rain came out in back to back to back weeks. And I said, well, you know, wait a second, Wayne Gretzky won his first cup right as Bird and Magic were playing in the finals for the first time. And you just, you started to make this list and you added an Olympics. And then, you know, I found a couple crazy stories, of, you know, the Patriots dynasty and uh, it, you just sort of lay it all out there and you say, you know, I know every, every summer has got to start, you know, every summer has got to hit movie every summer. There's a new Wimbledon champion or new NBA champ. But I just thought objectively an incredible amount of really important, memorable events happened in this, this one single summer.
0: You use Michael Jordan as the parallel and his transformation from college athlete to basically global endorsement brand throughout that period. And, and, you know, talk about how this summer sports became entertainment with endorsements and rights and cable fees. Sports started in one place and ended in someplace very different. Can you talk about how Michael Jordan first changed that model in that summer and then how that influenced other things going forward
4: yeah i mean part of it's just you know michael jordan i remembered when he when he came to my town he had given up his senior year at unc so he wasn't a you know he wasn't a college player anymore but he hadn't been drafted he was kind of in this no man's land and he was you know he'd wear sandals and bop around town and by the end of the summer he's uh you know in a a limo in chicago with a gold medal around his neck but i but i think uh, one thing, I really came away with a new respect for Jordan, because I think we all sort of say the same thing, which is amazing athlete, incredible basketball player. We never really knew what he stood for. He's very private now. He's kind of thoroughly and competitive. And even the last dance, you know, he didn't, wasn't necessarily a love letter to Michael Jordan. Um, I give him a lot of credit for really changing sort of the balance of powers with athletes. And he basically said, I, I don't want to just, get a shoe contract and get a bunch of free shoes and pose for a poster. And maybe you pay me a few bucks and maybe you don't. I want some equity. I I want to uh, be part of the upside. I want some of the profit. I want this shoe to have my name on it. Even with the Chicago bulls, he said, look, I'm going to bring in fans. I want a bonus in my contract when the attendance goes up. And he said to his agent, look, I don't, I don't really, I don't need to endorse basketballs. I want to endorse, you know, cars and underwear and mustard and you sort of look back at the endorsement landscape for athletes, you look at how much of athletes' income came from their, their teams and their prize money and their contracts as opposed to endorsements. And Jordan really is the guy who flipped that money. He's not the only one. Jack Nichols did it too. But you in a team sports setting, Michael Jordan did more to enrich athletes, I would say, than, than anyone else and really changed the model and everything from the, the signature shoe to instead of getting paid, he wanted a stake in some companies, I mean, that's, that's what Kevin Durant, and I mean, you know, that's that's something that stuck around. And I think we we think of Michael Jordan as kind of a, a great athlete, but sort of a bland figure that we never really knew what he stood for. He wasn't political. He wasn't social. He wasn't Charles Barkley. He wasn't Muhammad Ali. But I think Michael Jordan probably gets, you know, pr- probably should get more credit than he does for uh, changing the power dynamic in sports.
1: As much as Michael Jordan gets that credit and deserves that credit and probably deserves more, you write about Peter Ubaroth and the credit that he should get with regard to the 1984 Olympics. What was it about the Olympics that piqued your interest as far as how they changed the dynamic of endorsements for the Olympics?
4: Um, I didn't realize sort of the extent to which the Olympics were really in trouble. And you had um, you know you, you had terrorism in '72. You had these huge cost overruns in '76. You had a boycott. In LA when they got the '84 Olympics, there were a couple of things. First of all, they, they didn't really have to beat out anyone because the only other city that even put in a bid was Tehran, who then had a uh, like an insurrection and then withdraw their bid. So so LA basically got these games by default. And then Los Angeles, not unreasonably, said, "We'll host these Olympics, guys, but we're not going to." Raise taxes. We're not going to go into debt here. You got to use the existing facilities. And Peter Uberoth is the guy who basically said, Fine, and I'm going to run this like a business. And part of that meant cutting costs. And part of that also meant, you know, this is like the Reagan 80s. This is squarely in the middle of sort of, uh, you know, Reagan deregulation, free market. Uh, Peter Uberoth said, Look, you want to be an Olympic sponsor, you're going to bid. And if you want to be a network that broadcasts the Olympics, you're, you're going to bid. And we're going to do this competitively, and we're not going to be embarrassed about being capitalistic about this. And uh, I, I think I wrote in the book, the, the Lake Placid Games had about $10 million in sponsorship. Peter Uberoff set up a, a bidding war between Coke and Pepsi to be the official beverage of the Olympics, and then Coke won with $12 million. So with one beverage sponsorship in this narrow category, he'd already eclipsed the total sponsorship from the last Olympics that were held in the U.S., and by the end, you know, it was not. no one was holding their nose, no one was embarrassed. It was about money, and the Olympics ended up in L.A., in 84 ended up bringing in a surplus, turning a profit.
0: And this year they've got a billion in ad revenue, so you see where it's gone since. We'll ask you ESPN and cable TV in a second, but I have to ask you, Michael Jackson led to Bob Kraft in the Patriots' Super Bowl dynasty? Explain this to me.
4: I I sort of stumbled upon that one. And I I mean, I don't know if I'd ever heard that. Um, You know, I I wasn't the first person to write it, but uh, it's a wild story where Michael Jackson was king of the world, king of pop. He had thriller. And for his next album, his parents basically said, you know, time to, time to spread the wealth. And so Michael Jackson had a concert tour, the victory tour with his brothers. Um, It was a fiasco. Don King was the tour manager Michael Jackson didn't even want to be doing this tour, but um, the the tour was bankrolled by the Sullivan family that owned the Patriots, and they used the stadium as, as collateral. The tour lost a ton of money. There were all these, you know, dancers and elaborate sets, and it was a financial wreck of a tour, and the Sullivans had to sell the team, and through a number of uh, sort of dominoes falling, it, it ended up with Bob Kraft, and uh, he has a is a poster of the victory tour in his office and sort of jokes, you know, if the, if the Jackson brothers had gotten along better or, you know, if Don King hadn't poisoned these relationships, who knows if, uh, I get this team, who knows if there's ever a Patriots dynasty.
1: So did you ever give them Super Bowl rings? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> so, so the other thing is, is, is for those of us with kids, and both of us here have kids, is, is they can't picture a world without, like, ESPN and sports news. What was it? What was it about 1984 that brought about the rise of ESPN? Um, I mean, ESPN was, was
4: about five years old in '84, but it had been bleeding money, and you know, like any startup, it's to some extent to be expected. But part of the problem was that ESPN paid all these cable systems to get on their, you know, get on their range of channels. And around '84, ESPN says, "Wait a second, people love us. People want ESPN." No one's going to get cable if, if the package doesn't have ESPN. Why are we the ones that are paying them? They should be paying us. And there was sort of a, a showdown, and the, the cable systems blinked, and suddenly ESPN started getting a few pennies from every household. You know, fast, fast forward, and the number of households went about you know up about four uh, x from 1984, and those pennies turned into the the seven dollars some of us pay today. And ESPN also in, in 84 was sold to um to abc so it had sort of a new you know a media company owned it and starting in about 84 espn isn't losing money it's making money and then minting money and then suddenly it's buying you know it's, it's spending that on rights fees and it's buying monday night football and because of these media rights the franchises are worth more money and the players make more money and salary and i think um yeah i, I can quite put it every all together going in but By midway through the reporting, it becomes pretty clear that cable is a huge part of the uh, sports story of the last, you know, three, four decades.
0: Jeff would kill me if I just ask about uh, World Wrestling Federation, but I'm going to ask you about the cultural impact of the movie-music-sports combination from Karate Kid with MMA to WWF partnering with MTV with their rock and wrestling. Tell me about the sports and the crossover between movie and music.
4: Um, exactly. Yes. Some of it is more of this sort of cable landscape. Right. And, uh, M- MTV is putting on these music videos, but they want to expand and WWE sees this cable. You know, Vince McMahon was very early to see the cable wave coming, but said, Hey, listen, we need to cross over. So you have this crazy event in 1984, a wrestling event with Cindy Lauper, but also with Hulk Hogan and Lou Albano and airs in Madison Square Garden, right before the summer Olympics in 84. And against all odds, it's this huge crossover hit leads to what's become WrestleMania and was a huge kind of seminal moment in, in the W. Well, it was then WWF, but now the WWE's rise. And, uh, I, Karate Kid was the summer of 84 and it's, it's kind of totally different where Karate Kid is just one of these entertainment, you know, well, it just hit and there was nothing. I mean, I, I talked to Ralph Macchio who, uh, who was great but he's like you know we were filming this movie we thought it was all kind of cheesy and you know we we ate, we ate junk food and like played mini golf and drove around california in go karts but we were all kind of thinking what are we going to do next nobody said oh this is going to be uh, our defining role and just for whatever reason it was the summer it was southern california you know our, our president was from there the olympics were going to be there we're, for whatever reason it was this karate kid just hit and I think it took about eight or nine days for it to make back its total budget. And by the end of the summer, it was this huge hit and it spawned sequels and a, you know, the YouTube show 35 years later. And, you know, again, it's kind of this, what we were talking about before, where sometimes you just know your living history. Sometimes you know something is just a, Hugh you know, Hamilton, or you have these cultural phenomena. And other times you just, you can't really explain it. It's just timing and vibe and mood and catch some lucky breaks and the, the Karate Kid was uh, a, a, an example of that.
1: All right, John, we got one minute left, but we got to ask you: Every writer has a part of their book that they love the most. What was the part that you enjoyed mo- re- writing about most?
4: Oh man, um, I, I think probably the just rehashing that the Jordan uh, Jordan walking around my hometown. In, in part, because it was nostalgic, but also uh, just you you realize. That, Never in a million years, for a million reasons, would that ever happen today. And uh, you sort of crystallize how far sports have come, but also kind of crystallize how special this was. I mean, The idea of, uh, you know, an, an A-list athlete with no security and no publicist and no membrane of, uh, of a handler just kind of bopping around and hanging out with teenagers because he was bored and uh, playing mini golf. Um, it, it ain't happening in 2021.
0: The book, again, is Glory Days, the Summer of 1984 and the 90 Days that Changed Sports and Culture Forever. Go get it. You won't regret the time. John Wertheim, thanks so much for the time, for the great read, and we hope we get to talk to you again one day.
1: You got it. time. It was fun.
0: Jeff, I'm telling you, I I really got into the book.
1: So my my goal is to play mini golf with him because he mentioned mini golf like three times. So you want to go play? So so I'm guessing mini golf was a big part of his.
0: Probably. Yeah. I, as you get more into the book, you'll you'll appreciate be, because you know this is I don't remember this time in sports, and I'm not trying to say you will. Well, that's because you're a little boy. You were a little but, boy back then. But it is very cool to go back, and he really captures the feeling going on in the country at that time. Yeah, I was 16. It, 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 it,
1: it, like I remember everything he talked about was was a part of influencing my growing up. Absolutely. And, 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 and that's what's so interesting. I mean, for people that are, in, my, especially in my age group, understood that so well. For people that are younger, this is, this is really a history lesson. Well, I
0: encourage them to read it. That's going to be the last word. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.